0: Mexico, according to President Trump, is, quote, the number one most dangerous country in the world. Is that true? I'm Richard Miles, and here to talk about crime and violence in our neighbor to the south is David Shedd, the former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, an intelligence advisor to Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and a former career officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Welcome, David.
1: Good morning, Richard.
0: So, uh, David, first a little bit about you, sort of uh, prior to your your illustrious career as an intelligence professional. Um, I understand your, your father was a missionary in Bolivia. Were you, uh, were you born in Bolivia or born in South America? Or tell us a little bit about your
1: background. Well, I was born in Cochabamba, Bolivia, 1959, along with three brothers who were also born there, who were and have proceeded to be dedicated to service in either missions or NGO work. And uh, I grew up, though, mostly in Chile, up through the Allende years in 1972, from 1970 to 72, when when Allende uh, was governing in in Chile, when uh, my parents were disinvited from returning, actually accused of being the CIA, (laughs) which they were not, uh, but nonetheless, that was the accusation. That took me then to, along with my parents, to Argentina for a short period of time in 1973, and then over to Montevideo, Uruguay, where I finished high school in 1976. I say that all as a way of saying that Latin America has really been infused in my bloodstream in terms of my upbringing being both bilingual and bicultural in terms of of understanding it. My introduction to Mexico, however, from the southern cone of of my upbringing, did not occur until 1988 as part of my professional development, as I like to say, for five years when we served there, my wife and I and, and our two sons. In Mexico City.
0: Wow, Okay. so Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and then Mexico, you really do know the region quite
1: well. Right. And between that, then there was Central America the, the, from the 1984 to 88 period, which focused both in, at the front end of it in, on El Salvador, and then subsequently on Nicaragua. Um, any sort of favorite memories from your childhood or
0: high school years in the Southern Cone that, uh, that stand out?
1: Well, a couple of them. Uh, one, it was a great family upbringing in that we had no television in our home. So we actually read and we talked around the dinner table about international affairs and and what was happening in the world at the time. I uh, had the privilege of going to Spanish language schools locally up through the early years of my high school years when I then went to the American school. But I, I guess I counted it as a privilege that I had a mother who was an English teacher, so I had school twice a day. Uh, both in the regular school and then at home and that's where I actually got prepared to come to college back in the United States
0: so Latin America in the uh, particularly sort of in the late 60s early 70s was quite a different place than it is now I mean did did you did your family ever fear for their safety uh, or what was sort of the,
1: the vibe back then well, there were vestiges, I would say, of uh, of an anti-American, uh, which they generally would describe as anti-Yankee at the time. But I also remember the Alliance for Progress being a very successful program of outreach on the humanitarian side uh, with powder milk and other uh, supplies for, for young mothers and and others that... The United States had its, a, a signature dev- delivery to Latin America as well that was viewed as, as very positive. The one big contrast I saw from my growing up in the Southern Cone is that the distance literally and figuratively from Washington is enormous than, say, from Mexico, which I know we're going to get into when we, we talk about that a little further.
0: Right. It's just occurring to me. I can probably have you um, on the show over and over again, David, to talk about <laughs> almost any country in the hem- hemisphere. But you're right. We are going to talk about Mexico. And specifically, we're going to talk about the the security relationship that the United States has developed with Mexico over the last 10 years, which I really think is quite remarkable. Um, but yet there are um, considerable challenges that remain. And I'm just going to um, – I'm looking at the State Department travel advisory from about a month ago. And um, on one level, it's kind of a scary document here. So the State Department uh, last month uh, updated travel advisory, and it basically put five entire states um, on a do-not-travel list and a number of other states on sort of consider whether you need to travel there or not. And just reading, I'll just read you one excerpt here from um, Tamalipas in the north. It says, do not travel due to crime. Uh, Violent crimes such as murder, armed robbery, carjacking, kidnapping, extortion, and sexual assault is common. Gang activity, including gun battles, is widespread. Armed criminal groups target public and private passenger buses traveling through Tamalipas, often taking passengers hostage and demanding ransom payments. Local law enforcement has limited capability to respond to violence in many parts of the state. Uh, So that sounds pretty dire. Uh, inter- at least the State Department's view. And I know the Mexicans have pushed back on this, and they say, look, it's not that bad. And, and I, I mean, I've been in Mexico City, I think, four months, from Mexico City, four, months and, uh, four times in the last probably 10 months, and I've never once felt, it, it, you know, ill at ease or unsafe and so on. So I know there are big differences depending on where you are. But nevertheless, um, th- it's still a problem, and a lot of this is driven by the drug war. So first question is, what is the state of the drug war right now in Mexico? Are the, are the cartels winning, or are they losing, or what's going on?
1: The cartels, in many respects, are winning in the territories where they operate. So if you look at places like Tamaulipas, and you look at Sinaloa, uh, and even Jalisco, and Michoacan, those are areas, and even in close proximity to the federal district area of Mexico City and the state of Mexico surrounding it, there are. Uh, I, I sense a deep concern on my part for the, the the absence of rule of law, and by that I mean, in the broadest sense of its definition, that is the inability to have where the army, which has led the largest part of the efforts on the counter-drug portion of this organized crime for the last several years, really going back to the Calderon administration nearly six years ago, so 12 years ago when the Calderon administration came in after Vicente Fox, is unable then to hold the territory, if you will, to use sort of the military language uh, that, that we have... All now grown up with since two thousand and one, two in Afghanistan and then Iraq, the inability then to bring local law enforcement into those areas, and and bring that rule of law there. There are a couple of reasons for the the this this growth and then this deeply rooted organized crime presence beyond that. It is the inability of the justice system to bring to justice those who uh, are either captured uh, or detained in, in support of that. And secondly, the local law enforcement is practically non-existent in these areas as well. And so you have the rise of, of, of vandals, so to speak, who carry out their, their law enforcement on their own terms.
0: There has been some criticism, actually a lot of criticism, of the strategy that Calderon employed. Essentially, was kind of a, a decapitation strategy of going after the the, the heads of the cartels, and uh, which they were effective at doing that and did did um, knock off or capture, uh, particularly uh, folks like El Chapo. But the uh, first time. The first time. <laughs> right. The first time. Right. Uh, but that led to, you know, sort of inter-cartel or intra-cartel fighting, um, increased violence in a lot of cases, et cetera, and not necessarily a decrease in drug smuggling to the United States. Could you comment a little bit about the strategy that was employed uh, by the Calderon administration and I think early in the Nieto administration? And if that doesn't work, are there other sort of military-heavy strategies that you think would be better?
1: Yeah, it, it's very interesting, having been very much involved during the Caledon period on what I focused on vis-a-vis Mexico, the, as you described it, the decapitating the of, the, of the leads in these uh, large uh, transnational organized uh, uh, criminal organizations. They, they themselves, by removing the head, generally led to intrafighting uh, among them for the turf, Uh, related to where they conduct their organized crime. Uh, And that organized crime, as you gave a long list uh, on the travel warning, is far beyond just drug trafficking. And in that regard, I saw essentially these these organizations going from seven to eight to easily uh, 18 to 20, and it's probably somewhere around 14 to 16 of them today as they fight for turf. And so if you remove a Chapo Guzman, the fighting begins within the Sinaloa cartel for the power uh, among themselves. And so many of those who are killed in this war are in the sense fighting each other. However, there's the innocence in between, and then there is this absence of rule of law. Success, success, you have to take out the middle and the bottom as well. And so this will, uh, I, I, I think a little further ahead, I'll comment on the electoral campaign and some of the platform issues that Lopez Obrador, for example, has. So I'll wait for that to comment on that. But I will say that in essence, the the efforts today still do not take out the middlemen who are the lawyers and the accountants and the couriers associated with this and that way it prospers atomized if you will into smaller groups but oftentimes more violent than actually the original large TCOs these trans uh, organized criminal organizations.
0: Uh, Now Calderon started this uh you know, in, in in earnest, probably around two thousand eight, and uh, in large part due to the Merit initiatives, sort of the the agreement with the United States um, to provide security cooperation or security assistance and intelligence sharing, et cetera. Um, I remember working on it when I was at the NSC. I remember you were there as well, and we sort of got this off the ground. And uh, I think you, on one level you could say it's uh, in terms of a bilateral relationship and cooperation, it succeeded better than really almost anyone thought in terms of the relationships that have been built and the programs that got it started. Could you sort of outline over the last 10, 11 years as the Emerita Initiative has picked up steam and gotten well established, what is the scope of cooperation? What sort of things are we actually day-to-day on the ground working Side by side with the Mexican security authorities on.
1: Sure, as a preamble to answering your question, Richard, I'd say the relationship to the Medida initiative was to be patterned, not one for one, but in its broad in the broad sense of the word, um, to the Plan Colombia. And the initiative there, which was to enable, uh, the security elements of Mexico in the case of Merida to have both the tools, the helicopters, and the training that goes with it along with uh, the equipment associated with that through military assistance programs that would enable them to become more effective in, in this effort. Where that's led over the last 10 years, actually about a decade now, is a much deeper sense of cooperation between uh, the Army, which is known as SEDENA, the Secretariat of Defense on, on that side, the Navy, which is CEMAR, uh on, on their side, along with the civilian sides, the, the Center for Intelligence and, and their national security uh, element, called cen through its acronym, of where cooperation has gotten much deeper as a result, again, of multiple transactional efforts to deliver this equipment and training associated with it. What is interesting is that under the Peña Nieto administration, while that's deepened, the absence of a good strategy to go after, as I said previously, the middle of these transnational organized criminal organizations has frankly uh, faltered. Uh, in many ways, creating the kind of conditions that this uh, travel warning has led for these these five states or so.
0: Um, if you had to assess the, the types of programs that the U.S. and Mexico worked on together, what, what do you think has been the most successful? Which of those has delivered the best
1: results? So it, I, I can't go into details uh, for obvious reasons when it comes to the intelligence cooperation, but in a broader sense, it's wherever vetted units uh, are in place and these might be inside the army side it might be inside the navy or in the civilian organizations why why and do David
0: I, for, for those of our listeners who don't know what the term vetted I means could you just quickly explain what that
1: is Sure that is the process of really identifying individuals who will be trustworthy in carrying out the information sharing that you mentioned in terms of intelligence and and security cooperation so that that information isn't reaching the adversary that you're going after minutes, hours, days before you actually take action on that. So it's like a
0: system of background checks that you would do on, on Mexican policemen or uh, correct you know, army uh, officers.
1: And so e- exactly. On. And then it's a unit in which it's self-contained in terms of the intelligence that's shared for them. Think of just-in-time delivery. But it's done through individuals that have gone through the security clearance process, if you will, in in broadest terms. And again, this is something we learned from our Columbia experience. We, We learned from Columbia that if you had the inside penetration, that is the individuals working from the inside, passing that on, to the uh, drug trafficking organizations in that, in giving them advance notice of the operation that was aimed at at dismantling them, it obviously was counterproductive. Right, wasted the whole effort. And so that's where I think the greatest return on investment has come from. Other areas with the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, the uh, Customs and Border Protection, all have programs that are similar by way of cooperation, related to a much broader breadth and depth of issues related to our bilateral relationship with Mexico, which have have only improved over time. Right. It, it seems it strikes me that one of the biggest payoffs, so to speak, is
0: just the 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 cultural change. I guess the institutional change, in terms of, you know, I, I recall working on on Mexico sort of in the late 90s, and the very idea of Armed U.S. agents in Mexico working with Mexicans on Mexican security issues was just completely unthinkable. Off the table. Unthinkable. It was, it was almost the third rail of sort of Mexican politics. And now, you know, you look at uh, U.S. and Mexican uh, defense officials and uh, security officials, and they know each other, they get along, they like each other, and it seems to me that, if anything, is probably the biggest. Uh, improvement, I guess, uh, across the board, because now it sets the foundation to do things in the future that we just couldn't even think of before.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, Richard, and I I, I don't want to make this about the North America trade agreement and its renegotiations, but having lived in Mexico from 1988 to 93 when NAFTA 1.0 was negotiated, I think that set the foundation in changing the tone from the top when Salinas de Gortari, the president at that time, followed by President Sevillo, and then the peaceful transition to an opposition party under Vicente Fox as president in 2000, continued this trajectory of Mexico's cooperation, where what seemed unthinkable even a mere f- few years ago, a decade ago, or 15 years ago, has now become commonplace. And I think it goes to the fundamental question of how do you build trust between both parties? And having our border protection, border patrol personnel on both sides of the border cooperating, or deep inside Mexico when when it's DEA with their law enforcement counterparts from the uh, Attorney General's office, uh, the PGR as it's known through its acronym, uh, and the intelligence side, is is really a testament to how far we have come with Mexico and in profound and deep hopes that we don't set that back in terms of uh, acrimonious uh, negotiations over NAFTA, which I hope at least in principle can be concluded next month in early to mid-May. Right. Um, so, right, now,
0: now we switch to slightly harder uh, ground here, as, as you've alluded to. Um, last month, I believe, uh, President Peña Nieto basically ordered a review of all, I think, federal programs that involve cooperation with the United States. And this was in response to, honestly, I forget which one of President Trump's tweets, but it was uh, on the more egregious side. Um, I
1: think pertaining to the caravan and the r- That's right, the that. caravan, exactly.
0: And so as a result of this, Peña Nieto, uh, who has been under pressure for some time to, to sort of be tougher, gave a televised address. Um, which went over pretty well, I think, um, but also at the same time ordered this review. Is, is the review, is that just political theater, or or is there a, a real danger here that some of these programs that have been succeeding will actually get uh, put on ice or, or rolled back entirely? I don't
1: think that the review is uh, grandstanding on Peña Nieto's uh, part. My greater concern than rolling it back is not taking and seizing the opportunities between now and Election Day, July 1st, or the transition of power on December 1st of this year, that new initiatives that I understand from colleagues at state and at the Homeland uh, Department are really on the cusp of being agreed to won't actually get done. They won't get signed. They won't get inked in terms of the bilateral cooperation as a result of the review. I think the political uh, corner, if you will, in which Peña Nieto has been painted into by having to respond publicly to some of the, uh, the, 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 the tweets, if you will, and the, uh, the, the, the relationship with, with Washington, at least overtly, have, have forced him to take a more nationalistic, uh, position in in doing this. I'm not as concerned about the review per se, other than what it might do for the initiatives that I think are very close to being able to become a reality, even in the waning uh, days before the election and then doing the interim period before the successor takes office.
0: That, that's an excellent point. I'm glad you brought that, that up. I mean, we've talked on the show before about sort of this dual-channel uh, Relationship in which you have Jared Kushner leading this effort with uh, with Luis Videgaray, the foreign minister, and part of that is you have these sort of series of agreements that we sound like they're about to, to come to fruition. Let's talk about um, uh, López Obrador, who is continues to lead in the polls. Uh, as you said, the election is July first. Uh, last I checked, I think he had a, you know almost a twenty point lead. They had a debate the other night, um, Ricardo and I did very well, so we might see those numbers change and, and Lopez Obrador slip a little bit. But at this point, I think most people would say it's it's his election to lose. Um, he has made a few statements on sort of what his counter-narcotics, counter-crime strategy might be, and they're the subject of much debate, uh, at the debate, I'm very critical of his policy. And uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think? Uh, what are what are his instincts on security policy? If if he had the ability, what would which direction you think he's going to go? And then, to the extent you know uh, who his key advisors are in security, what direction you think those advisors might pull him?
1: Uh, it's a uh, it's always difficult to look into the crystal ball with any great degree of precision. We have. Two previous presidential campaigns in which uh, López Obrador, known through his initials AMLO, uh, pursued the presidency and by his own account made many mistakes in terms of, of how he pushed this, driving him to be more centrist in what his platform is today. Now, that's starting from a very far left Moving toward a more centrist position, including on, on security. The other bellwether is how did he do as mayor of, of Mexico City, of the federal district, and what did he do about security there? Now, getting to your more to the core of your question. Uh, from all indications, he will rely on what he, what he believes are the root causes uh, for the violence because there's really two topics, and in this particular order, in terms of this election. It's corruption at the very top, but it's interlaced with the second topic, which is violence, and what are you gonna do about it? Because a, the average Mexican person does not believe they are safe in a highly corrupt environment. So those are the two pillars on which Lopez Obrador AMLO is, is pursuing this. On security, he believes that you have to address the, the lower strata of society in Mexico, the poor who are driven into criminality as opposed to being born into it necessarily. And by that, it's really a social program to bring the raise the, the floating of all the boats when it comes to the, the underclass of, of Mexican society who have not benefited from. Uh, at least overtly from the boon of the growth in Mexico during the last six years, or NAFTA over the last 25 years, and so his his argument is you have to deal with those root causes. Secondly, he believes in an amnesty, and now he he it, it's a little hard to tell where that line is drawn. He says in the debate it won't be for the leaders of the cartels, but it's for the tens of thousands who have been uh, almost forcibly drawn into this life of criminality that we need to forgive and move on from. The one thing that is constant about AMLO is what he does see is not working and therefore something has to change. And so that's really the context of my remarks in reflecting what he's thinking. And I can uh, build on that, or I can go a little bit to his advisors as a as sort of a measure of where he might be going.
0: Fair enough. Let's let's talk about the advisors. Uh, from from what I've seen, as for sort of the other spheres, economic and trade and everything, he's got kind of a, a mixed bag of sort of former acad- former academics, former policy officials that don't necessarily seem to always agree with each other. Um, is that the same thing on the security side? Or is he listening to all different voices, or sort of just one?
1: one viewpoint. Um, He's he's got a a number of viewpoints, but I think they coalesce around the issue that what has been done, whether you go back to the Calderon administration in that that six-year period, or under Peña Nieto has not worked. They coalesce around this need to do something very differently, whether it's then to build a National Guard, which is one of the ideas that his advisors have brought to him. The other thing that he is intent on doing is uh, on a daily 7 a.m. meeting once he's president, assuming he gains the presidency on the 1st of December then or takes the presidency then, he will uh, lead the effort on security. He is not gonna turn it over what traditionally has been to give it to the Secretariat of Government, which is their version of a Secretary of Interior, not our interior, but their security apparatus falling under that, but very hands-on responsibilities. His advisors, if there is one concern that I have, are generally inexperienced in this area. Either he's tapping academics, some of whom have uh, many years of life experience to not make it about age, but are not really practitioners in this area and have never run the big institutions. I look at Alejandro Gertz Manero as an example, as his security person with a very mixed record when he was mayor of, of Mexico City on the security side, non-creative no new real programs that address the issues of Mexico City in that regard, even though by other accounts, Amlo is seen to have been a fairly successful mayor of Mexico City, which is kind of an interesting dichotomy. But when you dissect security, its it, there's a little bit of a, of an opaque unknown to where he's going to go on this.
0: One thing that struck me about the, Presidential debate on April twenty second. Is they they did talk quite a bit about uh, you know sort of the failure of the perceived failure of the Calderon effort. They talked about Amlo's amnesty offer and et cetera. And as, as far as I could tell, I, I haven't watched the entire thing. I've, I've watched about half of it. The subject of of security cooperation did with the United States did not come up as an issue in the in the various back and forths and, and the critiques. Which leads me to believe that if AMLO does win and he wants to take a new approach, that doesn't necessarily exclude the United States from playing a role in whatever new strategy AMLO comes up with. Do you think he would sort of – on on July – well, we know he won't take power until what, December 2nd or so or – on December 2nd, if the new U.S. ambassador walks in and goes, uh, you know, Mr. President, I'd like to talk about security cooperation, is his reaction going to be, hey, forget it. Uh, we're, we're doing something new. Or will, will he continue the discussion, you think?
1: I think he will continue the discussion uh, in my response ending where you left off in the sense that he will set a tone of, of – that mutual cooperation being done with respect. He'll he'll draw from the vocabulary of partnerships rather than the big brother United States telling the younger one what to do and how to do it. Uh, I would not be surprised, and this is my conjecture at this point, that he would actually do a review as to what these areas of cooperation are. But there's been no indication that AMLO, for example, would ever look the other way of having some uh, terrorists move through Mexico and enter the United States to conduct a, a, by definition, illegal act, but a terrorism act inside the United States. So the cooperation with the CICEN, again, the, the Center for Intelligence and Security, on the Mexican side would continue the cooperation, I believe, in in, in that way. Secondly, he knows, like everybody else that, that aspires to leadership in, in the political spheres, that information makes the world go round. And so if you cut off information flows, be it because of the Central American immigration flow without the assistance of the United States, that would be to cut off your nose despite your face. It's the structure under which that's done and the mutual respect. And I think we're going to hear far more nationalistic terminology associated with it. But if it's not in the uh, uh, in, in the full radar view of everybody to hear and see, I think you'll probably be fine with it and along with the done in mutual respect for each other.
0: Um, very cheery, optimistic outlook. I, I like that. Um, David, one last question. I usually ask, I've uh, been asking a number of my guests on, uh, when we're talking about Mexico to sort of uh, place a bet on, on NAFTA. Uh, in fact, it occurred to me I should actually start a betting pool, but I'm pretty sure CSAS would, would shut it down. Uh, we're, we're talking uh, here on April 24th. What do you think the odds are that the United States and Mexico reach some sort of deal, even if in principle, let's say, within the next 30 days?
1: I think very high. I think the intent, and you mentioned Jared Kushner, who is really playing, if you didn't have a Jared Kushner, I would like to see one invented, because that kind of person is the linchpin between our domestic issues related to Mexico and our international ones, which obviously the Department of State and Department of Defense and others play such a pivotal role in. But Mexico is different in in that regard, but I give uh, the high likelihood now, I'm more concerned actually about Canada in the trilateral aspects that the, uh, that the revised and reformed NAFTA may take, whether those can be uh, overcome by leadership, de- uh, leadership decisions that are made by the prime minister, Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada, President Trump here, and President Peña Nieto to resolve the last remaining issues remains to be seen. But I think the working groups and the intensity between now and I believe around the 9th of May, 10th of May, that is talked about as aspirational for concluding a NAFTA in principle is actually relatively high, with the caveat that I think it's gonna require some real strong leadership at the top on conflict resolution and and issues like chapter 11, which I don't wanna get into with this audience because it gets highly technical, but they're important issues on every side of the divide as, as, the, as the treaty is, is negotiated.
0: If that were to happen, that, that'll obviously be big news. Uh, at, at, at a symbolic level, it'll be huge news. Will it have any effect on the presidential election in Mexico?
1: I think the only effect is if it doesn't happen. Uh, 25, 27, 28 years ago, President Salinas de Gortari. Cast his future and lot, particularly economically and financially, with the United States. The naysayers in the Revolutionary Party of the PRI were were uh, absolutely uh, appalled by this fact that we they were breaking with tradition by by really uh, locking arms with the United States and by extension Canada in what we now know as NAFTA. It was a change of course of history for Mexico. The naysayers now, and AMLO would be part of that chorus, which, see, told you so, you can never count on the United States. They are fair-weather friends. It's what's in it for them. They've clearly used us and therefore have discarded us. That will, I think, largely boost uh, AMLO from a nationalist populist standpoint in terms of his, his base constituency, Anaya would be in a very hard place trying to explain how you do that as the pro-business party of the Pan, although it's part of this front that's part of the Revolutionary Party, which is an odd mix. And Pepe Meade, who is so far back as a PRI candidate and maybe perhaps the best qualified of, of the candidates by way of experience in governance and, and experience in the finance ministry and, and going in both administrations of different parties uh, would would be set back enormously as well. The agreement in principle, I think things then coast along and it remains corruption and it remains violence. And they're intertwined, as I said earlier, which I think are really what's most in, uh, uh, most on the hearts and minds of, of the Mexican people in terms of, of what this election is about.
0: Well, certainly on NAFTA, I know a lot of folks in Washington, Mexico City, uh, hope you're right. I hope you're right. Uh, although occurs, The markets also hope they're, they're right. Exactly. Although it occurs to <laughs> me, if that happens, I'll have nothing to talk about on my podcast anymore. I have to think of something else. <laughs> um, anyway, David, thanks very much for joining me this morning. Uh, excellent analysis and, and hope to see you back.
1: Delighted to be here, and I'm glad I can contribute to the uh, dialogue on these issues. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.
0: All right, now we get to the best part of the show, Big Little News with Sarah Baumannk. Um, Sarah, actually, the biggest little news of the week is the fact that you got your first business card.
2: My very first business card. So you're
0: really an adult. There's no going back now.
2: I'm a real person. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Well, all right. You have really um, scoured high and wide for this article that you picked today. This is, um, this is quite something. Uh, listeners, I hope you're seated when you, when you hear this headline. Sarah, what have you got for us today?
2: Um, Today is just a discussion about a really important border issue going on on the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, And it was a man in Brownsville, Texas, who last week was sentenced to 50 years in jail for $1.2 million of theft of fajitas.
0: Okay, so interesting numbers here. 50 years seems like a long time for anything. Um, I've never heard of a $1.2 million heist fajita heist how does that work
2: yeah absolutely well so the man gilberto escamilla he um, works at a prison in brownsville texas Um, and he was running a scam in which he was having tons of fajita meat mailed to sent to the prison but then instead selling it on the side in his own store Um, And the best part is the way they figured it out was he was gone one day for a medical appointment and somebody delivered 800 pounds of fajita meat to the prison, which they don't serve.
0: Seems like that might be something you'd you'd sort of make yourself remember. Uh, Note to self, remember the 800-pound fajitas that are showing up at my place at work.
2: Just pencil it in. Um, Yeah, and so once they got um, their search warrant to kind of investigate everything the real smoking gun was they found um county funded fajitas in his personal refrigerator
0: i'm pretty sure i've never seen that phrase for county funded fajitas Um, (laughs) but clearly they don't mess around in brownsville 50 years that's uh that's a lot so i guess stealing fajitas down there is is uh quite a crime.
2: And they don't serve fajitas in the prison, so he's going to be out of luck for the next 50 years. So,
0: um, Sarah, I guess this counts as under your cheery news category? Yeah, absolutely. Fajitas are always good news. Fajitas are good news. All right. Thanks very much, Sarah. Thanks. 35 West is a production of the America's Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Special thanks to our editor, Rebka Gemelangsari. Program Manager Linnea Sandin, and Research Assistant Sarah Baumunk. If you like the show, please, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening today, and please join us again next week.